This evening's reading is um, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34, and it's on page 1152. So 1 Corinthians 11, and starting at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. And you might like to... Uh... Oh, there isn't one. Um, to have 1 Corinthians 11 available to you. It's page 1152. And this evening we're considering that. Now you may have only recently come up from Pathfinders to Cipher and last week may have been your first ever encounter with a communion service and you might have wondered what on earth was that. Please explain it to me. Or you may be someone who's not been a Christian very long. Maybe this is the only church you've ever belong to and you might have seen some services that are communion and you again you think you know what does it mean why do they do it like that and even if you've been here a long time and a Christian a long time it's quite easy to unless we have reminded of ourselves you know what the whole thing means so this evening we're going to remind ourselves what this is all about because it's quite easy to get into the habit of doing something quite automatically and we forget why we do them and what's more if we end up with an empty head as 
as to what it all means and what it's all about. It's very likely that it won't stay empty for very long and that we can pick up various erroneous ideas along the way which won't be very helpful. So, this is known by a number of different names. The Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, breaking of bread, and then the Mass, which just means really um, a meal, uh, um, a kind of at a feast. And we'll elaborate on some of those as we uh, go through. But this evening I want to concentrate on just two aspects. It's meaning and the way in which our service is structured. Although sometimes in the evening when we pass the bread and wine around you might wonder at all whether it's kind of organised, but um, we'll see. So what does it mean and why do we do the service the way we do? So communion for us um, points in a number of different directions. You will notice that as you read through 1 Corinthians 11. If you've ever worshipped with the Christian brethren, you will know that they call the service the breaking of bread, and they have biblical warrant for doing so. When we look at the earliest recorded account of the Last Supper, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, we're looking backwards. We are to remember. But when we remember, we're not remembering the life of Jesus. We are, in this context, remembering the death of Jesus. It is his broken, it is his broken bread and the poured wine that we focus our attention on, recalling his broken body and his shed blood. So it's not so much the Jesus of Nazareth as the Jesus of Calvary. And the New Testament is short on graphic physical details about the horrific and barbaric suffering on the cross. If you really want a dollop of that, watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ. I mean, it is all about flagellation. And um, there's a few seconds at the end when there's sort of a bit of hope. But uh, the New Testament is short on all of that. But the powerful events surrounding the death of Jesus are almost deafening in their significance. So, for example, between 12 noon and 3 on Good Friday, the sky went black and Jesus said, My God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you ditched me? He has a sense of total um, abandonment by his Father. And as we... Uh, and as we remember that, we remember that that abandonment is what we would experience if we never in this life took the opportunity to connect to God and to become an adopted child of his in a relationship with him. And then another big symbolic event was that the temple in the curtain, the, the temple, sorry, the curtain in the temple which covered access to the kind of the holy of holies, the place where on earth the presence of God was, that that was split from top to bottom. I forget exactly how high it is, but it's really very high and very significant. And just as that did that, Jesus had said, it is finished. God had found a way 
to give sinful human beings access to himself. So first of all, we're called to remember, to look back. For any Christian, though, who looks back to the events of Calvary, the next direction looks pretty obvious. We are to look up in gratitude. We respond with gratitude to the Father for initiating this wonderful saving work and for the Son in volunteering for it. So Jesus, on the night before his death, gave thanks, and so should we. The Eucharist, from the Greek Eucharistos, which means thankful, is what some of our high church brethren call the communion service. They call it the Eucharist. And they're right to do so, so long as they remember that the Eucharist, um, in the Eucharist, we are making two offerings. We are making an offering of our thanks and praise to God. We're expressing our gratitude. And we are offering our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice to God's praise and glory. It's when ideas creep in about the minister, or the presbyter in Anglican speak, being a priest and offering the sacrifice of Christ again, that we've departed from any biblical understanding. So we look back and we look up. The official Roman Catholic line is that the bread and the wine on the altar actually become the body and blood of Christ. The bread and the wine change their substance, their appearance remains the same, but they would try and say that the substance, what you can't see, um, changes, and that's where you get the word transubstantiation from. When the priest says the words of institution and the bell rings, then they are offered to the Father again as Christ's sacrifice. For us in the Church of England and for other Protestants, the leader of the congregation presides at the service. By prayer, ordinary bread and wine are set apart. They stay bread and wine, but they take on new significance. They transignify, if you like. They symbolize the body and blood of Jesus. And they are placed on the table. In the prayer book, there are only tables. There are no altars in the Church of England. And anybody who says so is wrong, because they're all supposed to be made of wood not of stone. They're supposed to be tables for a meal, not an altar or a sacrifice. And I, um, as an ordained minister in the Church of England, I'm not, in a priest, I'm not a priest in any kind of Old Testament sense. I am a priest only in the sense that all Christians are. As a presiding minister, I and other ministers serve you. That's what minister means, servant. We serve you with the bread and the wine. We don't offer it to God at all. We offer it to you. So God, you see, is providing a meal and we serve the food to you for your benefit and you give thanks to him for it. Now thinking of a meal brings us to the idea of the Lord's Supper, the messianic banquet, the great party at the end of time when everything's wrapped up and uh, we celebrate for all to see the victory of Christ on the cross and the resurrection in bringing about this kind of a restoration, this gathering up of all these kind of uh, orphans among, in the world into a new family of his. And there is a great party. 
Jesus spoke of it quite often in the Gospels. And it will take place when Jesus returns. And the Apostle Paul writes that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, or as the service says, as we look for his coming in glory. You see, we're only visiting this planet. Our time here is only temporary. The Lord's Supper reminds us constantly of the future, of eternity, and of making sure that decisions we make in this life will ensure that we partake of that, that we're included in the party. We have received the invitation. We are SVP now. We enjoy it then. Put it on the shelf. Ignore it. Think it's not going to happen. Boy, have we missed out big time. Now, as Christians, we have hope, which is more than most people have. As the poet Browning wrote, the best is yet to be. So we look forward. Now, we also look around. It's called the Holy Communion, a sharing. We gather around the table. Even back in the 16th century, when Cranmer and others were writing the kind of liturgy, the kind of services that are they were drawing from scripture, they were writing them, putting them in a book, which we kind of have updated since in terms of uh, language. That the, the table was meant to be in the body of the church and we gather around it for a meal. Five times in 1 Corinthians, in that uh, passage, Paul writes of our coming together. He sees it as a time for the body of Christ to gather together with their Lord. And as we've said, not that Jesus is in the bread or wine, nor is Jesus on the table, but he is here with us at the table where his people gather. Archbishop Cranmer himself, who, remember, couldn't possibly have a Catholic understanding because that's what he went to the stake for, by, for not believing that. He said, if by real presence you mean the presence of Christ in the bread and wine, we reject it. But if by the real presence you mean the presence of Christ with his people at the Eucharistic celebration, we affirm it. So you can see, we look back, we look up, we look forward, and we look around. And finally, we look within. And it's here, perhaps, that we have most to learn. In the old Book of Common Prayer, written in the days when communion was taken much less frequently, perhaps just three times a year, the ministers had to read out six pages of warning beforehand. Between 1980 and 2000, in the days of when the Church of England had an alternative service book, the warnings were dropped. Now in what we call common worship, and in the service and in the option that we opt for, they have been, at least in part, reinstated. And these are what they say. The minister will say, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's you who are Christians. As we gather at the Lord's table, we must recall the promises and the warnings given to us in the scriptures. Let us therefore examine ourselves and repent of our sins. Let us give thanks to God for his redemption of the world through his son, Jesus Christ, and as we remember Christ's death for us and receive this pledge of his love, let us resolve to serve him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Now maybe the language and 
that some of the words are not ones we're familiar with. But it's just what Paul says in Corinthians. He's told them that they need to examine themselves because they can so easily deceive themselves and partake of Holy Communion unworthily. In fact, he says, if you're not properly prepared, if you take it kind of automatically, or when you have known sin in your life that you haven't repented of, then you could well be in trouble. He even thinks that some people have died and in, are in ill health as a kind of punishment for taking it unworthily. Well, that's what it means. What's actually happening in the way in which we go about uh, doing the service? Well, there is the visible, what you can see. And there is the invisible, what you can't see, but nonetheless is going on at the same time. Now, the visible is the minister who stands there representing Christ, who is really the chief host, the presiding minister over the meal. And the visible minister offers the visible bread and the visible wine to our visible bodies. At the same time, the invisible Christ offers us his invisible body and blood. In other words, the forgiveness of sins that his death enabled to happen to our invisible souls. You got that? And our visible bodies receive the bread and wine by eating and drinking. And our invisible souls receive forgiveness of sins by faith. And as we take the bread and wine, we are saying this represents what Christ's death achieved, forgiveness of sins. I need that. I'm going to take it. I believe his death works. So we look back, we look up, we look forward, we look within. Now while um, we look at the, the communion service, it's one that was kind of written in the 1550s based on 1 Corinthians 11. It was then published in the form that the church holds um, present today in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. There was a kind of 20 years when there was an alternative service book and we now have a common worship book. We don't give it to you because it's about that thick and I can't even find the pages when I'm at the front here so there's not much hope of uh, us all doing it. We just make certain choices which we print on cards for ease of use. So it's really what the martyred Archbishop Cranmer kind of um, the way he structured things. And our services, whether they're communion services or whether they're services of the word, where we don't have the sacrament, communion, our services really are designed to express the gospel. They are designed to detect and confess sin in our lives. They are to announce to us God's grace. And they are a means of us exercising our faith. We express belief in God's promise, we trust him for the promised pardon, 
and we express our gratitude in acts of praise, intercession, and receiving and obeying instruction. So in a service of the word, for example, uh, you may not notice it, but we have a confession. In one form, it's, we have erred and strayed from your ways, like lost sheep, etc. We have grace expressed, God pardons and absolves all who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel, is one, one line from it. And we have faith in God's pardoning grace. So we have the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. We sing songs of praise, we intercede, and we respond to the sermon. So our services have a kind of sequence. They have sin, grace, and faith. And there are three cycles of sin, grace, and faith in the communion service. Two of them you hear, and one of them you see, although the one that you see also has words so that you know what's going on. So in the first cycle, when we start the communion service, sin is acknowledged. We read out in what's called the Collect for Purity in the preparation section. We read out, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And then we have sin um, carries on and we hear the law of God, the summary or the whole Ten Commandments. And our response is, gosh, I don't live up to that in thought, word and deed. Lord, have mercy upon us, we say. And then uh, we have grace. Grace that restores sinners is expressed in the New Testament readings, which then follow that part of the service. And then we have um, faith, where we respond to God's grace, and we do so by affirming our faith in the creed. We either recite it, or this morning we actually sung it, our version of it, we, we learn through the sermon and we join together in prayer. And then there's the second cycle. Again, sin, grace and faith. Sin is acknowledged. We pray in, uh, in the confession, have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all that is past. And then we have the absolution which is proclaimed, it's no more, it's not something that the leader of the service says of their own authority, they're saying it on the authority of the New Testament, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins. And so, we have the absolution. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with heartfelt repentance, not robotic repentance, and true faith, not wishful thinking, turn to him, have mercy on you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life. That's the goal of this life. And then we have what's rather quaintly called the comfortable words. We say, hear the words of comfort, our Saviour Christ says to all who truly turn to him. And comfort is in the old sense of confortis, which means with strength. His words are strengthening for us. Then we again we respond to grace with faith. We have a kind of change of mood in the service. We say, lift up your hearts, and you're supposed to kind of, kind of um, 
say them back in a much stronger sense in which you may have so far been going on through the service. And you say, we lift them to the Lord. And I say, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And you say, it's right to give thanks and praise. It's indeed right. It's our duty and our joy at all times and in all places to give you thanks and praise. And what are we giving him thanks for? Well, we're giving him thanks for pardon for sin. And we express it with grateful praise for the reality of forgiveness. Imagine living in a world where you cannot ditch your guilt. That's what some cultures are like, the Japanese in particular. They have no way of getting rid of their guilt. It remains a shame for them, and shame cannot be got rid of in that kind of culture. That's why they commit suicide. We have us. The third cycle, again, sin, grace, and faith. And we have the prayer of humble access, as it's called. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. And we have um, grace. We have it in what's called the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer that's read out to remind us about what we're doing. A full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction, for the sins of the whole world. I think we even on our communion cards have a little glossary at the bottom if uh, some of the words are rightly unfamiliar. And then we have grace expressed in the distribution when different people um, serve the rest of the congregation with the bread and the wine. And we say, take, eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Again, we have at the end of the service, although we don't tend to use it because we've usually run out of time and we haven't got a way of singing it, although probably it's quite good sung. There are lots of different versions. We must get our musicians onto it. But there's a thing called the Gloria where we say glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you. We give you thanks. We praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord, you alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Dr. Jim Packer has um, written, What we need more than anything else at the Lord's table is a fresh grasp of the glorious truth that we sinners are offered mercy through faith in the Christ who forgives and restores, out of which faith comes all the praise that we offer and all the service we render. I hope you found that helpful, illuminating maybe. You realise what it's all, what, what, what uh, the communion service is all about and also the kind of structure of it, those three cycles of, uh, as I've mentioned, of sin, of faith, of sin, of grace, and then faith. So let's pray. So let's remind ourselves and embed in our own personal spirituality that when we come to communion, that we look within. 
that we examine ourselves in case we come unworthily to communion, to the breaking of bread, to the Lord's Supper, to the Eucharist. Let us look back to the cross, to Christ's death for us, to the passion where sins, our sins, were punished. Let's look up to the love of God for us. Let's look around to the body of Christ who are with us on our journey to everlasting life. And let us look forward in the hope of his return. Amen.